This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This month, I've got some special episodes planned for my listeners. If you're here, I know you're fascinated by true crime stories. Some cases in particular seem to grab the attention of the public at large and become media sensations. In the past, the O.J. Simpson murder trial, the John JonBenet Ramsey murder, and the mass school shooting at Columbine High, to name just a few, were true crime stories that were followed and talked about by millions of people all over the world. We can discuss and even debate why certain true crime cases receive so much attention and seem to become almost an obsession by the public. But every year, without fail, a few of these crime stories top the headlines. This month, as we wrap up the year, I want to find out what cases fascinated us most. Which stories stand out in your mind as the ones you followed obsessively, talked about with family or friends, and gave your attention to the most? I've asked my listeners this question, and we may hear from a few of you on the podcast. If you want to weigh in and hear your voice on the podcast, go to our website, truecrimepodcast.com, and click on the red microphone at the bottom of the homepage to tell us your biggest true crime obsession of 2023. I've also asked some of my fellow podcasters and other true crime content creators what the biggest stories of 2023 were for them. You'll hear from them as well throughout this month's episodes. And never fear, I'm also sharing my true crime case obsessions from the year, in the usual true crime storytelling format you're used to on Once Upon a Crime. I'm excited about this year-end wrap-up series, so let's get started. My first guest is a familiar face and voice to most true crime fans. Erin Moriarty has been a CBS News journalist for three decades. She's been a correspondent for 48 Hours, the documentary news magazine on CBS television, since 1990. She's also a fellow true crime podcaster. A new season of her award-winning podcast, My Life of Crime, has just returned for a fourth season. This time, Erin takes you inside true crime investigations that involve crimes within families, a topic I recently covered on Once Upon a Crime in October, so we'll have a lot to talk about. She interviews families torn apart by deceit, betrayal, and murder, and attempts to answer the question, what drives a person to kill a family member? I can't wait to get to Erin's insight into this fascinating topic and talk true crime with her. Let's go now to that conversation with Erin Moriarty. I am so excited to have Erin on the show. Welcome, Erin. Well, it's fun to be here because we both kind of share an interest, crime. <laughs> yes, yes, and podcasting. And I can't wait to talk to you about the podcast because you have a long career, which I just went over for our listeners. Um, but one of the things I think that we'd still like to know is how covering true crime became your job. That's really what I'd like to know. <laughs> well, it's it's kind of weird. Sometimes I want to know, too. It all was just, I think by luck, um, because it did turn out to be the perfect uh, mix for me. I think, you know, I'm a lawyer and I started practicing law 
Um, but I practiced law at a time when there, particularly in the Midwest, where there weren't a lot of female lawyers. And I don't know, I had this harebrained idea that if I went on television, I am not a journalist by education. I'm a journalist learning on the job, you know, over the last over 30 years. But um, I thought that if I went on television, that um, people would get to know me and I would have clients. I honestly did this to become, a, you know, to get a greater list of clients as a lawyer. And then I fell in love with with doing television, telling stories. Um, so when I went into news, at first I just told stories, but I was covering news. Um, when I went to work for 48 hours, at first we did all kinds of topics, and then we started settling on trials really back in the mid-1990s. Um, and I think what really just hit me for a lot of reasons was the um, – O.J. Simpson trial. Number one, that was really one of those trials everybody, every day was watching a little bit. If they didn't watch it during the day, they watched it when it was recapped on the news. And they became very interested in both crime and the legal system. If you remember in the O.J. Simpson trial, that was really the first high-profile case that introduced DNA. So all mm -hmm. of a sudden, those two things came together for me because um, while DNA back then was being used to prove that O.J. Simpson had had committed the crime, what DNA has been used for just as much, if not more, now is to show whether they have the right person on mm -hmm. either in prison or on trial. And so, I started doing all these stories um, involving where the system works right and where it doesn't. And then when Forty Eight Hours went all the time to trials, it was a perfect, perfect place for me. Um, I'm the only correspondent on 48 Hours who is a lawyer. Um, I pick stories that I think have new, important, interesting issues. And then how I got into podcasting was because, believe it or not, even when you have an hour to cover a trial, it just didn't seem like enough. And we would learn so much about the case that we couldn't tell within that hour. So I started talking about cases either that I couldn't do on 48 hours or that I could expand um, on my podcast. And that's that's the long and short of it. Yeah. And that's that's that was going to be the next thing I was going to ask you is, so how is this different um, podcasting and telling these stories as, as a podcast format than it is um, on 48 hours? Like, what is, is there anything that you are trying to maybe you know, give to listeners that you can't do on television, or is it just a deeper dive? What is the difference? It's a, it's almost all of that. So um, it's a deeper dive. Um, it's focusing on issues that I didn't get to bring up on 48 Hours, or it's updating in season four, the season that we're in right now. I got to update with a very surprising twist on a case that we didn't get to put on 48 Hours. Um, I often, too, um, you know, I talk to killers and accused killers um, all the time. Um, I find the interviews fascinating, but on 48 Hours, I can only get so much of that in. And I often expand on those interviews so that people can hear just how complex, how tough it is sometimes to really, as you well know, get to the bottom of a case. I feel... Um, a real responsibility 
Uh, I even though I know 48 hours is in an entertainment time slot, and I think podcast people do enjoy listening to podcasts, so in some ways, it's considered entertainment. What we do is essential because we really do uh, help people form an opinion about a case. And these cases, when we say true crime, involve real people who have a real stake in the outcome. And I think it's really important that um, I try to be as fair and as accurate. And uh, so I spend a lot of time in my podcast letting people hear both sides of the case um, because I can I can expand it over two or three or four episodes while with 48 hours I get one hour and actually less than one hour when you include ads. And I just feel all of this together gives people a far more honest, uh, clear understanding of the case. Mm-hmm. So you said you mentioned something at the beginning um, and that really stands out for me because I always want to ask this question. Because it is, you know, giving information. It is, it it is, you know, telling, um, you know, a, a case. But it's it's telling us it in a way that's a story, right? And it's different for television because of the way you present it. Maybe, um, at, and the same thing with audio. So there's a different way you have to kind of pull things in. So your listeners, because they're not seeing these people or seeing, you know, maybe reactions of you know you or the people you're interviewing, but you, they're hearing them. So it really is about crafting that story, which I think you do really, really well. But here's a question, because you mentioned something else that really I hadn't thought about. When you bring in, of course, the families, that's one way of telling the story is having them, you know, with their experience of, of you know, what they're going through um, dealing with this crime. But you also talk to, like you said, a, a killers or accused killers, Right. I would assume that would be something that you had to learn how to do. Well, of course, you were an attorney. So were you a criminal attorney? Were you used to talking to people that were accused of things? Or how did that? I did do some work. And I was going to say, you tell a great story, too. I think it's essential. And while while it sounds like storytelling, you think, oh, you're just telling me a story. No, remember in the trials, prosecutors and defense attorneys tell stories too. So that actually, the the best prosecutors are, are people who tell the jury stories that fit with the evidence and they understand. So I just mm-hmm. want to point out that while we both use that term story, it, it still is the truth. It's the accurate story um, that is being told. Um I have to say, I don't think it takes any kind of skill to interview someone accused of a crime or who actually, you know, the evidence seems to point to and they've been convicted as a, of a of a crime and their killer. It's it's really listening to somebody and not letting them off the hook. Um, and I think if if the only advantage I might have as a, an attorney is um, you're trained to be a little fearless you're trained mm-hmm. to want to try to get to the truth and you're trained to not so much argue, but to debate uh, when somebody brings up a point. If you have evidence that points to something else, you can um, bring it up. I have changed over the years. I used to have far more of a um, prosecutorial uh, tone. Um, I used to like getting people the way you might in the courtroom, but um, I've learned as a journalist that doesn't always work to your advantage that people are put off. 
And so um, early on, I used to sit up during interviews, you know, lean in, and now I lean back. Um, I might have the same kind of question and tough question, but I try to keep my tone even because our jobs um, as interviewers, really, the point is to bring out the best in that other person, to bring out the truth or or the contradictions in what they're saying. And you can't do it if you're, you've got a tone or you, you're hostile in, a, in an interview. The, the trick is to bring it out. And, um, and that's tough. Um, I find the tougher interviews, to be honest, are not the killers. It's the victims who've really gone through something. And so you are um, making them relive or feel the pain over and over again. And um, so I find those are the hardest to uh, bring somebody to talk about what happened or um, uh, the pain that they are going through uh, without causing a lot more pain, maybe hopefully being more cathartic. Um, So those are the tougher interviews for me. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, that's one of the things I don't think people think about too much when you are dealing with people who have gone through trauma, um, are still going through trauma. It's the way that they are perceiving the story sometimes can be, you know, of course it's in their own, you know, in their own experience and their w- own way of, of the way that they process it, which isn't necessarily always a hundred percent accurate, but that's not really the point sometimes when you're, when you're getting their experience, right? Because oh, it's very absolutely. difficult to be 100% accurate when you perceive a certain thing or you, you're, you're dealing with, um, you know, maybe a loved one who was killed and you're going to the trial of their killer. I mean, that's, you can't be completely 100% analytical. Well, yes, this happened, this happened. You know, there's going to be a lot of emotion. So how do you get around that? Um, or how do you, or do you just allow them to whatever it is they want to express? Or do you feel like you kind of have to contain um, the story in a way so that we don't get off track or it becomes, you know, too much. Well, there are two, there are two, um, I guess, well, two ways that a victim may come across and that you have to deal with them in different ways. So if you are simply wanting to know the impact of a crime on somebody, you can kind of let them talk from their heart. But here's Mm -hmm. what I find all the time, and these are really tough. So when a prosecutor brings a case and someone is arrested and the victim's family trusts that prosecutor and believes that that is likely the person who killed their loved one, sometimes they're wrong. And those are the very hardest hardest interviews to do and the hardest stories to tell because um, they need to believe that person who's arrested is the guilty person. The last thing they need to think is, oh my God, they've not only have they got the wrong person and putting them through this awful trial, but they're not finding the person who killed my loved one. But getting people to that point is very difficult. And sometimes I have evidence that shows it's probably not that person and they don't want to believe it. And so those are the very toughest cases. And so let me give you, you know, an example. Um, I have a story I've done for years, Crosley Green, uh, a man who was accused of um, 
robbing a couple and killing the man when there's no evidence that he was there except for the young woman who survived her testimony. And there is evidence that she might have been involved. But the young man who died, his family wants to believe it was the man who was arrested. They don't want to believe it was the girl with him. And so they will often get angry with you. Um, even when you're just saying, well, you you know, this happened and you know the evidence shows this. Those are the very toughest interviews to do. So that's what I mean. There's two different kinds of victim interviews. It's when you are allowing a victim to talk about the pain they've gone through. That is a very different interview than when you have to talk to the victim's family about the evidence when the wrong person might possibly be on trial. I want to now talk about your podcast, My Life of Crime, because season four, I would imagine these are some of the toughest to deal with, these kind of cases. They were about family members killing other family members, correct? Well, so yeah, because, got- well, you know, you, this is so interesting. A, a producer once said to me when I was trying to figure out why would he do this, you know, and he was like, why are you applying reason on an unreasonable act? I've always <laughs> thought about that, that all of us try to look at a crime using reason. And sometimes murders are just unreasonable. Now, that's true for all murders. Now you look at families. And these mm-hmm. are people, you know, in a family, we are at least the, you know, the ideal, the uh, romantic ideal is that, um, you know, families love each other and members of families love each other. And so, why would that end up in murder? And so that is a really interesting question to me. And we decided to look at some of the cases, the most baffling cases that we had come across that really raised those questions. And one of the ones I deal with, again, in this season that I still, I wish I had a better answer because here you have a young man, um, an athlete, no apparent um Uh, either psychological or emotional problems. He had a lot of friends. Uh, To all accounts, he seemed to get along very well with his parents. And then his parents disappear. And he becomes the main suspect. And you just, you're not just covering the story as a reporter trying to get the facts and the evidence, but in the back of your mind, and it turned out it was in the back of the minds of the cops too. Like, why? Why would he do this? And it it's it is the most baffling question in these kind of cases. So I deal with that one. And and we used we found evidence, it was made public after the trial, um, of these text messages that the defendant has with his girlfriend that are even more baffling, that even raise more questions about why would he kill his parents? I should point out he didn't just kill them, he chopped them up. And um, and then buried parts of them around the state of Wisconsin. You're just like baffled. And same with a young woman that we cover, the Mullinex case of Rachel, who loved her mother. So why would she be accused of killing her mother? Or as she says, she let you know stood by when her boyfriend did it. Um, what's the truth? How do you explain those kind of cases? And then my favorite for this season are. are 
is the um, what I call twisted twins, the twin brothers, so much alike. Um, one decides to commit a murder and the other thinks, well, I couldn't let him do it alone. He'd screw it up. So I have to help him, baffling enough. But then their attempt to pull off the perfect crime, and they almost do. Um, mm -hmm. So those are really interesting stories to me. Yeah, because you're getting the stories of, you know, the, the victim and the perpetrator, but also you also bring in the family because, of course, they're going to have maybe they're not going to believe it, you know, if, if they're they're close to the, to the family members or if there's 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 always secrets in families. You know what I mean? So you've got to bring all that in too. like, well, we're kind of closed lipped here because we're private. We're a family and we keep things, you know, so even I think you as an interviewer trying to get information, like maybe background information or things out of a family might be a little bit more tricky when you're talking about somebody in their family who was actually the perpetrator, but also the victims are there. So it's very, it, it'd be very confusing. I think. Oh, it is very confusing. So. And, you know, the courtroom really illustrates what we're talking about. So anyone who's covered a trial knows that when you walk in, it's almost like a wedding. I hate to say on one side are the people supporting the defendant on the other side are the people supporting the victim and the victim's families. Now think when the family is both, you know, behind the defendant and the victim. So now all of a sudden you have the court and you have these family members sitting on opposite sides. And so one of the cases I do is a case of um, a woman who finds out that her husband of almost 25 years, she knew his first wife had died tragically. What she didn't know was that he was the main suspect in that murder and then 40 years later, after that murder, um, he's goes on trial. And I, I talk about that in the podcast, that the courtroom is divided. And even in the hallway, people won't look at each other. And they're all family members. They were all people who used to be close. And then that really puts us as journalists right in the middle because um, my colleague, Mark Obam, um, who was sitting in every day of the trial, was just trying to talk to the defendant's daughter and one of, it was actually the defendant's daughter's aunt um, who went up and she said, which side are you on? And he's like, I'm not on either side. You know that because, because when it involves family members and, and it is dividing the family, the anger is even greater sometimes than when it's a stranger. And so as journalists, it's just so scary to, you know, you're afraid to talk to anybody. Which side should I sit on today? Sometimes when I'm covering a trial, I'll move back and forth. Um, I don't know what side to sit on. Um, <laughs> that's why I decided to spend a season looking at these kind of these kind of crimes. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot to dig into there. It's just it's because that's the thing you think about. It's like a you, I think if you're looking at it from the outside and you think, well, of course, you're going to be against the murderer, you know, but if it's your own child or it's somebody that you're close to in the family and you don't really believe it, you know, that's another thing. If they're like, yeah, I don't know that I believe it. And, you know, things could be skewed or whatever. So I, I think it's it's too easy for us on the outside to say, well, why would you why would you support a murderer? You know, there, there's a lot of reasons why you might make that decision to still kind of try to 
support them in some way, even if you, you know, whether or not you believe it's or, or, you know, they did something or not. So it's, I would imagine it's very, very, very complicated. Well, it is. And I found like, so one of the cases I'm doing is the one I told you about the wife who finds out her husband's a suspect. And when I asked her about it, you know, God bless her because she put up with my questions. I mean, I felt like most women, I wanted to represent all women when I was talking to her, like, you know, you didn't do any research. You find out that he's a suspect in his first wife's murder. And didn't you immediately do research? And she goes, no. She said, I live with him for almost 25 years. You know your husband. And I was like, oh, you know, I think I might have done a little research. <laughs> but but then I started thinking, you know, that actually, I, I mean, I really sat, I am right down the middle on that trial because, yes, there is evidence that points to him. But I'm also, I'm also not persuaded, but I'm moved by, could you live with someone for 25 years, sleep with somebody for 25 years, see them in and out and how they treat other people and not get, I mean, if he were a sociopath or worse, a psychopath, wouldn't you get some sense? Because let me tell you, this wasn't just a murder. This was a murder where the victim was found get this, with an axe in her head. This would take an, uh, an act and a, um, a, you know, uh, I mean, a lack of feeling um, that I can't even imagine as a person. So, so the idea that this guy is accused of putting an axe in his first wife's head and then no history before, criminal history before, no history of violence before, and none after. I mean, so I'm open to the idea that maybe he didn't do it. Um, at least in, that's what I want. I want the listeners to have a sense that maybe there are some cases we'll never really, really know. Here's the evidence. You're going to have to make this decision for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's <laughs> those are yeah, very very juicy cases on this season for sure. I want to ask you one question though, just like generally. So one of the things that we're doing, I can't believe we're at the end of twenty twenty three already. So I we're know. trying to do a little bit of a wrap up. So what I'm asking people is is one general question. What was a case, and it doesn't have to be one you covered, but it could be that was you couldn't stop thinking about this year or, or maybe it, if it wasn't one you covered, like, was there one that you wish you could have covered <laughs> because it was something you just couldn't stop thinking about? All right. Does it have to be just one? I'll start with the number <laughs> one, I guess. Um, and this one won't surprise you, Alex Murdoch. And can I <laughs> yeah. just say why? Um, and it's also why I was pretty interested in the Lori Vallow case too. Um, I didn't cover either one of those. And you're right, I wanted to, but I can't cover every single case that comes up. But why I was fascinated by the Alex Murdoch is that the evidence indicated that whoever shot Paul, who was 22 years of age, shot him while they were looking at him, you know, in the face, shot him point blank in front of him. And I struggled to believe that even Alex Murdoch with his history of lying to people and stealing money from people could do that to his own son, maybe his wife, because we see, you know, husbands kill wives all the time. But I could not believe that. And that was the same problem I had with Lori Vallow. I mean, killing two of her own children, giving, she gave birth to these kids. 
Um, right. But um, I was wrong. And uh, and the evidence, you know, I had my friends would call me up going, Aaron, did you hear the latest evidence? And I'd go, okay, okay, okay. But I, I struggled with that. And I think that's why so many people were interested in that case. One, he was accused of killing his own child. Two, you know, you can't make up all the really bizarre facts that came up in that case. Um, <laughs> and it's the case that keeps giving. Uh, the murder happened, I think, in 2021, and then he wasn't indicted till 22, and then we had the trial in 23, and it keeps going on. He's just pled guilty to financial crimes, and the only surviving son could possibly, I don't think it's actually going to happen, but could possibly face charges of his own. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a story that doesn't seem to end, but I'd also have to say right in there is the Idaho students case. Mm -hmm. And that one troubles us really for the same kind of reason that this defendant, this accused individual, is accused of doing something that we all can't even imagine. In this case, not killing a child, but killing four young people that he didn't seem to know. And you just like, is that possible? and, and it's a wonderful case because it's adopting many of the new uh, forensic tools. So we're interested in that. And again, the cases, there's always new facts coming out. And there were four very, you know, wonderful children who were involved who died in that case. And so, and then the police work is interesting. And um, so those are the two, I think, are the big cases of, of 2023, but Idaho murder case, student uh, case will go into 24, maybe longer, because right now there still isn't a trial scheduled. So that one is one that will next year, when you ask me, (laughs) what was the big case? I'll be going, oh, the Idaho (laughs) student murder case. Yeah, but I want you to notice something when you you talked about the Murdoch case and the Lori Vallow case. Those are both about families. Those are both families. I know. know, Murders and families. So here we go. So I know you before. I know, but you would think that as long as I've been doing this and I've seen it all, um, that how could I still have faith in humans and you know not realize that sometimes people kill their kids? But it it is still rare, and it's it is a rare event. Um, When I was working on the case involving the young woman uh, accused of killing her mother. I did research and only 2% of all murders involve um, women killing their mothers. It's a very, very rare thing. And um, a little more common for boys to kill parents only because boys, it's more common for men to commit crimes and murders. But um, but these are very, very rare crimes. And uh, so that is, you wonder why are they rare? Um, and then why do they happen when they do? Yeah. Yeah. I'm always very fascinated by the, the, the female perpetrators just because it is, it is more rare and they're just sometimes are extremely creative. And I was like, wow, <laughs> you really thought that went through, you know, and tried to do something. I mean, it's just, it's really, it's a completely different, uh, take on it. Of course, you know, there's always like, you know, like a rage murder or something like that or a jealousy. And those can be pretty cut and dried. But some of them are just so convoluted. And, you know, just you're just like, wow, these women are just 
and when they when they put their mind to something, <laughs> it's it can be very uh, it can be very uh, complicated. So. So yeah, it's it's been um but it um, I could talk to you all day to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's fun is it's really fun to talk about these cases even though again as I say they are very real for people and um and mean a lot and it's so important. I mean, I think it's good we talk about these cases. Um I think we educate future jurors uh because they understand more about the legal system when we talk about it and um sometimes we help uh, police jurisdictions, when they see uh, a new technique that one is using. Um, I had a case in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. I love these cops, I should say. And the reason why I love them is because there was a murder. There was a boyfriend who was the perfect suspect. They were getting pressure to arrest him. And the two cops, these two detectives, their gut was telling them because the um the suspect in that case was wearing a Fitbit and it showed that he couldn't have traveled during that time. He also had a progressive uh, GPS on his car. It shows he didn't drive to where the body was. And they, they went with their, um, their concern. They might have the wrong person. And sure enough, it wasn't the boyfriend, even though he was a perfect suspect, it turned out to be a drifter. And they got him with a Google dashboard. And so I loved doing a piece. I know that involved all the new technology. And I even asked one of the cops, I said, 20 years ago, before we had any of this stuff, would he have been arrested? And they said, we fear he would have. And I said, could he have been convicted? And they both kind of got quiet. And they said, yeah. And so I love that story because I felt we were helping to amplify and getting the word out that there are, are these new forensic tools that can get the right person and not the wrong. Because ultimately, as a lawyer, as a reporter, um, as a podcaster, um, as a storyteller, it's getting the right person that's the most important thing for me. Yeah. I love when I get a case that I'm researching and there's a, just really good detective work and if it wasn't for them really just grinding away at the detective work at the little pieces, it probably wouldn't have been solved. And I just love that because, you know, a lot of people don't know like how, how crimes are solved, except for now following true crime and you know, shows and documentaries and, and podcasts and uh, really seeing that these people are heroes. I mean, they really sacrifice time, you know, sometimes their health. Um, you know, all kinds of things to to catch these killers. And um, the families are just eternally grateful when when something like that happens, because you see it coming together. You're like, wow, if they hadn't have gone the extra mile to do this, they wouldn't have found that. And this wouldn't have led to this in the arrest. You know, so I think that's just amazing. I love those stories. There's another really good reason for podcasts and these stories on these cases. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the presumption of innocence. Um, everybody talks about it, but we really don't have it in this country unless it comes from the storytellers, from the podcasters and reporters. Um, if you think about it, you know, whenever anybody hears there's, uh, you know, someone's arrested, people, oh, he must have done it. But I think mm -hmm. because of these podcasts and stories where we're realizing sometimes they get the wrong person, we're helping to give new life to this presumption of innocence that we give a lot of lip service to, but we don't really believe. Um, I do. 
Um, in fact, you know, there's a joke in my office that, you know, everyone I run into is innocent. That's not true. But I will say that I start, I want to believe that person didn't do it until I see the evidence that convinces mm -hmm. me otherwise. And I think that's, that is, I think we are helping to make Americans look at case, cases the same way. Yeah. And it's great. Like you just said that people that go in uh, and serve on juries will have, you know, have that in their mind, like, okay, well, I can't just immediately think, well, you know, because I saw the arrest on television that this person is guilty or whatever. So yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I really, I like that because uh, we are more educated now. We are more knowledgeable about how the courts work and how, you know, crimes are investigated and things. And it really, it helps us as the public to, you know, when we're, when we're involved in something that maybe we make better, you know, just conclusions about things maybe, or, or at least keep an open mind about things. That's, that's exactly really just keep an open mind, keep an open mind, which is what a journalist does, right. An investigator does if you're good at what you do. Right. So I want to thank you so much for coming on. Please tell our listeners where they can listen to your podcast and, um, you know, just, it, just follow, you know, the cases that you're covering. Well, of course, it's called My Life of Crime, because actually, as you can imagine, I'm kind of living this life of crime since that's all I do for a living. So it's My Life of Crime by Erin Moriarty. And of course, it's wherever you find your podcast. You know that well. Um, so, you know, Spotify, Apple, Wondery, you name it, um, Wondery, and um, uh, Audible. So we are everywhere. And also 48 hours, of course, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So every Saturday, there's 48 hours. There's also the 48 hours podcast. You know, mm -hmm. I love this world now where you can get true crime in all different kinds of ways. So, yeah. Yes. Thank you so much. It was, it was awesome talking to you. It was such a fun conversation. And I learned stuff, too. So <laughs> I oh, that's like nice. That. Well, it was great talking to you, too. This has been fun. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Aaron. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I want to thank Erin Moriarty for being my special guest on today's show. It was so much fun talking true crime with her. I hope you enjoyed it too. Make sure to listen to her podcast, My Life of Crime with Erin Moriarty, and the 48 Hours podcast, both available on all podcast platforms. I also hope you'll return next week when I'll share a portion of an episode about an infamous true crime case I released way back in season one of this show. My style of sharing true crime stories has evolved over the years, so it will be a retelling with new narration by me. Even my voice sounds more mature from when I began seven plus years ago. As an added bonus, I'll discuss this case with an acclaimed true crime author who recently released an amazing book about this multiple murder case. You will not want to miss it. Remember to follow or subscribe to Once Upon a Crime wherever you listen to podcasts. And I want to remind you that you can also subscribe to Once Upon a Crime on YouTube. You can watch videos that accompany each episode. Hop on over and look for Once Upon a Crime podcast on YouTube to watch my interview with Erin Moriarty this week. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. It really helps new viewers to find our YouTube channel. There's also a link to our channel in the show notes. Thank you. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another.